And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's election week. It's Wednesday. It's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Week is back, starting September 13th. For one week, the iconic chocolate chunk cookies topped with a pink and blue smile will be available at Tim Horton's restaurants across Canada. 100% of the proceeds from each smile cookie will be donated to local charities and community groups in each restaurant's neighborhood. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, the Smile Cookie campaign has raised more than $60 million for charities, hospitals, and community programs across the country. Grab your Smile Cookie from September 13th to 19th only at Tim Hortons. Love that Wednesday music. Love it. It signals Bruce. He's in Ottawa. Don't you just love that music too? Yeah. You know, Peter, since last week, I've been really like, I wake up every day. I go, how many sleeps till Peter's book is (laughs) is available? And then usually, uh, you know, that lasts for an hour and I go, oh, too many sleeps still. It'll come. And then I start thinking about the election. So that's been helpful for me as a distraction from the stress I feel waiting on the book. Uh, but I know we're not here to talk about the book today, but we're if not, you did want to remind not, people that the book is coming, it would know, be okay. Really, it's just it's just not right for me to say. You can find out all the details of the book at thepetermansbridge.com, and you can pre-order and enter a contest. And I know you're giving all these plugs because you expect that I'm going to give you a free signed copy. No, just endorse my book, which I'm going to write What's your book going to be called? I'm not saying yet. I, we're, there'll be plenty of time to promote that down the road. And, and it won't be a farming book, but farming will be part of it for sure. It's not going to be a about, project like, it's all, not going to be all about polling and all that. Is it, is it going to be like, no, it won't be, it won't be boring. And I won't sort of say, well, everybody wants to know every story that I can remember from my entire <laughs> life. And I'll maybe write four or five books like that. I've just had a very interesting life to her and, and yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm going to learn from what I've observed. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Yeah. But you've, you've told us countless times what you've learned from what you've observed. You, you now want to put it in print as well. Well, you keep saying it's such a cathartic exercise. It is it's so much fun. I, I, and I, uh, I'll, I'll assure you of that. It is cathartic and it's, you know, it's good, good fun. Um, okay. Enough about books. Um, sure. Isn't this exciting? You know, we're like five days away. You know, this is like democracy is exciting, right? Well, yeah, it's exciting. It's uh, it's a little stressful. You know, I kind of feel like um, the first election I remember, it did feel like, you know, maybe it was because there were only three TV channels. I know there were more, but it was there. Were, everybody consumed the same news and everybody consumed the same kind of print content, TV, mix, radio. Um, and it felt like a national conversation. And I do think that over the years since, especially since the internet has um, become a big part of our lives, that it's it's harder to know exactly how many different conversations are going on that are going to affect thing and things. And if you're in my line of work and you know, literally you can go long stretches in between elections where people don't go, Bruce, tell us what you think is happening up there. You get a lot of that during an election and it's harder to know 
And I'm not, you know, I've got a good friend. A lot of people know him who follow him on Twitter, voice of, I won't finish the sentence. He's always ready to tell people exactly what's going to happen. And I kind of, I'm amused by it. But, you know, my position is I think I see some things going on and I'll tell people what I think I see, but I'm very much, uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, we don't know right now. You know, you talk about watching your first elections on, on TV. I remember watching my first Canadian election on TV. It was either 57 or 58. There was only one channel then, and that was the CBC. Imagine wow. living in a world with only wow. the CBC, right? Wow. Um, but it was, you know, it was black and white. They kind of anchored from, I don't know, some studio, I think, in Ottawa. Charles Lynch used to anchor the program. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't a CBC employee as such. He was, you know, he was he was Charles Lynch. He was a great columnist in, uh, in print journalism. He'd been around yeah, for a he while. Was. He, was he, a, was, he was a giant, yeah. Yeah, he landed on did the beaches everybody, of did Normandy. Tell me, did everybody smoke on the set? Oh, yeah. Were there, people, were there little bottles of whiskey underneath the the tables? That it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me that the, uh, they certainly smoked. In fact, if you, watch the, if you watch the 67 or 68 leadership convention, go into the archives, dig deep, go to YouTube, wherever, um, Norman Depoe, another great, uh, you know, journalist of his era, um, uh, he, he was openly smoking on, on the air during the broadcast, and it's the strangest yeah. thing to watch. You see it Very there, strange. and you go, oh, my gosh, look at that. Um, but, you know, I, I used to be a smoker in my early days. I, I quit more than almost 25 years ago now. Um, but in when I started doing the National, I used to smoke during the National. You couldn't see it. Mm. Um and, uh, you know, the, I, the cigarette would be in an ashtray off to the side during the, during the program. And I'd take a, you know, a puff or two during a, a little Johnny Carson style, right? A little Johnny you, you Carson seeing style. All those clips where he would, you know, the camera, the, the show would come back on after a commercial break, just before he got the butt out of his mouth and then put yeah. it aside. But yeah, you know, the other thing, I know we're going to come to the election and, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to that, but I think the first time that I really saw my, uh, future wife was that she was a um, a commentator on an election broadcast that that you were doing. That's and, right. Um, she was a commentator because she was a senior um, aide in the Progressive Conservative Party, legislative assistant to Joe Clark. And I remember thinking, "Wow, I'm going to hang around politics. These, these are interesting <laughs> people." The great Nancy they, Jameson. Um, you know, who, as you say, worked for Joe Clark and in, uh, you know, and, and future elections, uh, became a commentator for us on, on a couple of them. Uh, and she was, uh, you know, she was terrific. She, she always is. Um, okay. Let me, um, let me move slowly to, uh, <laughs> to today, but to get to today, I think you got to start by understanding 2019 and I want you to give us the. The short story on that, because people get carried away um, with the numbers. I get carried away with the numbers in terms of, you know, the polling data that comes out every day on this campaign. And you try to keep things in context. And one way to keep them in context and in perspective is to remind yourself of what happened in 2019, where the conservatives ended up two to three points ahead of the liberals in the number of votes cast, but considerably behind in the number of seats won. I think it was, you know, it's somewhere around 25 or 30 seats. Um, 
less for the conservatives than for the liberals, which seems odd when you see the number of votes cast is so much higher for the conservatives than it was for the liberals. Um, so I think you have to keep that in mind because a lot about what we're looking at now in terms of the lay of the land is not dissimilar from what we saw in 2019. So first of all, explain to me how, you know, in the most basic of terms, how we wound up with the result we did in 2019, given the number of votes that were cast and how they went to the different parties. Yeah, certainly the simple math in 2019 is that the Conservatives got a higher proportion of the total number of votes cast because they got enormous volumes of votes in the Prairie Provinces where they won their uh, the bulk of their seats, especially in Alberta. Uh, and so that can happen. Um, and the key for the Conservative Party to ever kind of get to uh, forming a government is that they need more votes in Ontario, they need more votes in BC, they need more votes if they can get them in Quebec, and they need more votes in Atlantic Canada. And right now, and, and so for the last couple of elections, the Conservatives and the Liberals have really kind of fought over... Uh, call it eight or nine points around the center of the spectrum. People who say, I could vote conservative, I could vote liberal. And in 2015, those votes went for Mr. Trudeau. Uh, by 2019, some of those votes were, I don't know, he's not really everything that I hoped he would be. I'm a little bit disappointed with um, with some of his policies. I'm more tempted by the conservatives. But in the end, um, Andrew Scheer turned out to be uh a real challenge for the Conservative Party as a leader. He just wasn't effective at, at winning the confidence of those voters outside of the prairie stronghold of the Conservative Party. Um, fast forward to today, um, and, you know, it's probably the case that the Conservatives have won a few more of those kind of liberal Tory swing voters. Um, Aaron O'Toole's a little bit more reassuring um, but I think the way that I see the numbers right now, you know, while some argue that Mr. Trudeau hasn't really given people a reason why he called the election and therefore a reason to vote for him, I think it's also true that Mr. O'Toole hasn't really made a compelling case for why we should have a conservative government. So for those voters who are looking for that, uh, I don't think that 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 picture has been painted very, very clearly at all. Um, and then the other fight that really matters, Peter, is the uh, larger number of voters who say, I'll either vote liberal or I'll vote NDP. That's about 16, 17%. So huge volume of votes. And those voters had been with the liberals mostly. Uh, and then they started to feel like they weren't getting enough of what they were looking for on a variety of progressive issues. And, and they weren't sure that they had confidence in the liberals on Indigenous relationships or climate change, uh, maybe those two the most prominent of those issues. Um, and so they started to drift to Mr. Mr. Singh. Um, I think the, the election hangs in the balance in terms of what happens with those voters. Um, and uh, one of the things that we might talk about today is, you know, Mr. Singh in an interview with Rosie Barton last night on, uh, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, I think there's more scrutiny now on the idea of voting NDP because people look at the numbers a little bit, at least even from a distance and say, well, we might get a conservative government. And do we really want that? Those progressive voters, I mean. So sorry for the. No, no, no that's good. I mean, I think that gives us 
that gives us a good sense of uh, of the way things are are happening. We we should, seeing as you raise it, let's talk quickly about that Trans Mountain thing because it could have a an impact in BC. I mean, as you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been saying there's no pursuing of Singh on answers, uh, you know, real answers to specific things he's brought up, but he's not telling us how he do it. Now, Rosie didn't back off. She kept at him and finally ended up saying, you're not answering the question. And that's noted and we'll move on now. But tell me, you know, in a nutshell, I don't want to get sidetracked by this, but in a nutshell, why is that issue um, so, uh, so important in terms of those kind of voters, especially in BC right now? Well, I think that the the Green Party and the NDP made quite a meal uh, out of Mr. Trudeau's decision to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think they profited politically from it extensively, and it was a choice that the PM made knowing that he was going to um, take heat for it, that he would probably lose support for it, that he would have to make a careful argument for how it fit within any kind of ambitious uh, climate mitigation strategy. Um, and and so he's, you know, Mr. Trudeau's borne the scars and Mr. Singh has benefited significantly from, you know, that sense among BC voters that that Trudeau built a pipeline or bought a pipeline that they that many of them, those progressive voters uh, didn't want. So why it matters now and, and I'm, you know, I appreciated the fact that you've been saying you know, there are various ways that people can say, well, there's some good journalism and there's let's be critical of some of it. I think the the criticism that you've raised consistently about whether or not Mr. Singh is being held to account is a really important one, because if people vote NDP without knowing what his positions are on some of these critical issues and they end up getting a conservative government, which isn't really what they uh, they want, and 75% of NDP voters don't want a conservative government if the choice is between a liberal and a conservative government, then people are going to be disappointed, and they're probably going to wonder, well, why didn't I know what his position was on X or Y or Z? And there hasn't been very much of that kind of scrutiny. So it's I think people should watch this clip with Rosie Barton. I think it's a, it's a bit of a master class in terms of how she's able to Keep on pushing the need for a clear answer. She says, what would you do if you were prime minister with that pipeline? And he says, well, I wouldn't have built it. And Mr. Trudeau built it and he put us in that situation. And she stops him after he says that for a while and says, well, you, yes, I get that part, but what about what would you do? And she said, and he says, well, it's really important to know, you know, what my position is. I want to be really clear with Canadians and basically, you know what, and, and I know what he's doing at that point in the process, he's trying to eat seconds so that the clock runs out before he has to answer that question. And she won't let it happen. She keeps saying, yeah, 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 that's not an answer. The question is, and I I should say, I think she did it respectfully. The question is, what would you do with it? And he finally says, well, I would assess it and see what's in the best interest of Canadians. And she says, well, what does that mean? What determinant would you use to assess it? And he says, I would use the determinant of what's in the best interests of Canadians. So it's there, that clip for people to see. And if there are progressive voters who think, well, I could vote for Jagmeet Singh. And even if Aaron O'Toole was the prime minister as a result, I know 
that Jagmeet Singh hates pipelines. He hates oil. He hates pipelines. He will, he would never let that TMX be built. Whoops. He might let it operate is what we learned last night. And can you count on him to press the conservatives if they're government enough that they won't build the Northern gateway? I think those are questions that emerged because of this clip last night. And I don't want to overstate the importance of it, but BC looks like it could be the battleground that decides how Monday goes. Yep. And those swing voters between the NDP and the Liberals are the are probably going to be the determining factor. So I think he's going to he's going to wonder how he ended up in a situation this late in this campaign without a better answer on what would you do with the Trans Mountain pipeline. You know, if, if I wished anything, it would be uh, that that all the leaders were pursued in that respect on their vulnerabilities, and they all have them. They all have them, not just Jagmeet Singh. Yeah, and they yeah. all do exactly what you say. They're eating seconds. They're trying to move on to the next topic. They're spinning. They're doing whatever they can do to not answer the question. And it's incredibly frustrating. And, uh, you know, Rosie was right, right to do what she does, did because if there's anything that bugs an audience, it's that when they're not getting answers to yeah. direct questions. And, uh, you know, and and unfortunately, it's become a part of political life. um, And and most of, if not all, I think all of the leaders do it. Um, Okay, I want to ask a more, um, why don't I ask this question? Um, 2004, 04, 06, 08, we're all minorities. 19 was a minority 11 and 15 were majorities so four of the last six elections mm. were minorities there's every indication that this one is heading that way at least based on the numbers we see right now heading towards a minority uh, you know have we found ourselves in this century becoming uh, you know a, a government of minorities which at a certain point can lead to a government of coalition. Um, but I, you know, we went through a long stretch of majority governments, pretty much. Now we're into a significance, a generation of minorities. So is, 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 that, is that shaping up to be the future? I don't know. I think that the, you know, every... Every time I think, oh, you know, we can learn from the past, I think, yeah, but we probably shouldn't use the past to predict the future. So I'm a little bit betwixt and between on this. I do think that we become, it's easier to have a fragmented uh, political outcome in an era where the price of entry for a political party or a leader is much lower than it was before. It wasn't very long ago, as you know, Peter, that if a party wanted to run an effective national election campaign, um, you needed $20 million. You needed to be able to uh, finance some of it with a bank that didn't know whether or not they were ever going to get paid back. You needed to be able to have a, a plane that you could fly people around in. You, you needed to buy advertising in very significant amounts on television. Um, today, you can find an audience from your desk. 
uh, and you can build an audience by convincing one person to reach out to 10 more. You can raise money uh, through all kinds of uh, grassroots digital fundraising schemes, and you don't need as much money as you used to um, because maybe you're not uh, flying a plane every week. We've seen that Aaron O'Toole is doing a lot of the uh, communication work that he's doing from a studio in Ottawa. Um, So I think the price of entry is a lot lower, which means in theory, you could have a lot of smaller parties take root and develop some, uh, some strength. Our first past the post system does mean that those smaller parties will have trouble getting seats. And I know that's frustrating for people who wanted electoral reform, um, But I think that, um, and and I don't think that Mr. Trudeau covered himself in glory at all in the way that he stepped down from his, or backtracked on his uh, commitment to electoral reform. I think it was a fairly embarrassing, um, uh, a fairly embarrassing episode uh, for him. And, and, uh, but the thing that he said at the time, which did stick with me, is that changing our system, if it resulted in a whole bunch of really small parties with really, um, tendentious views, um, you know, might that be bad for our political culture? Now, I don't think it's for one political leader to decide. And, uh, and so I'm not trying to relitigate the electoral reform issue. I am just saying that this whole issue of fragmentation, is it a good thing because it gives more people access to a party that might exactly represent what they believe? Um, I'm probably not that guy who thinks that. I tend to think we're better off having bigger tent parties. We're a society that has historically felt like we were better served when we look for compromise where there's conflict rather than more conflict and less compromise. Um, what does it take to to draw enough voters in to create a majority government? It takes 39%. Uh, it takes a leader that has the interest in trying to get those votes Uh, from uh, a broad cross-section of the country, but primarily in the largest, most populated areas of the country. Um, That doesn't always mean it's a representative uh, party uh, or government. And we know that it's reasonable for people in the Prairie provinces to say they don't feel very represented, or at least in Alberta and Saskatchewan, to feel they don't feel very represented uh, with Liberals in Ottawa. But, you know, sometimes they're not that happy with their own provincial government as well. So uh, that's where I am on it. We, we may, you may be right. We may be headed for endless series of minority governments because the price of entry is so low, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Um, I've got some People's Party of Canada stuff to talk about with you, uh, but we're going to take a break first. Here it is. Starting September 13th, Tim Hortons Smile Cookie Week is back. From September 13th to 19th at Tim Hortons, 100% of the proceeds from all Smile Cookies purchased will be donated to local charities and community groups across Canada. In the last 25 years, you have helped us raise over $60 million. And in 2020 alone, Smile Cookie Week brought in $10.6 million while helping over 500 community organizations. You can participate by grabbing your own Smile Cookie at Tim Hortons restaurants across Canada from September 13th to 19th. You're listening to The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. All right, Peter Mansbridge back in uh, Stratford, Ontario, 
Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. This is Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on the Bridge on Sirius XM Canada, Channel 167, Canada Talks, and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Here's my question about the People's Party. Maxime Bernier. And it's it's a question about fairness, really. Uh, here is a party that is, you know, depending on which poll you look at, is polling upwards of double what the Green Party is. And yet, they weren't in the debates. They weren't in the French language debate. They weren't in the English language debates. Um, the face-to-face program, which ran on the CBC, was excellent. Four party leaders. Um, and their criteria for that was have to be a national party running across the country and you have to have at least some representation in the House of Commons. So that was the criteria. And that's why the People's Party didn't make it. That's why the bloc didn't make it. But I'm wondering, when you see upwards of 7% of those being contacted for various polls, saying they would vote for the People's Party of Canada, their leader, Maxime Bernier, their policies, um, and they're mainly around, you know, they're at least the best known policies are around COVID and sort of resisting the uh, uh, the fact that um, whether it's mandatory vaccines or masking or what have you. But they're basically blanked in terms of coverage, debates, special interview programs, even the nightly news. And some news organizations are saying they won't cover them on election night because of a question of safety for their reporters and their crews. What um, what do we make of that? Is that fair? Uh, well, I, you know, I remember as we were thinking about talking about this, I remember the conversation that you and Chantal and I had um, around the time of the Trump, uh, the last U.S. election. And we're having the conversation of what should the media cover of some of the material that's out there? And do they have a responsibility to, um, to kind of take away the president's microphone in those moments where he's going on and on and on with things that are manifestly untrue and often, um, you know, worse than, worse than that in terms of the implications and the impacts that they could have on society. And I think, you know, what I observed with you and Chantal is that kind of reflexive, maybe that's not the media's job. And I, and I understand that. And I think that's a reasonable argument as to whether the media's job is to, is to kind of limit, coverage of anything. But I think the other side of the coin is the, is the modern um, challenge, which is by seeing something that's causing friction and saying, oh, look, there's friction and people love car accidents and they love friction. So let's train our cameras on that because people will pay attention to it. Um, is that a decision in and of itself to give more oxygen to things that don't deserve more oxygen uh, in the minds of voters or readers? And is the media, by deciding to give those things more oxygen, um, making a decision 
that uh, the people that they purport to serve wouldn't agree with. So this is all in the mix of what's the right relationship between media and, and the public. And I would say I make a distinction increasingly between the owners of uh, media platforms and some of the journalists. I think some of the journalists are quite uncomfortable with what some of the owners are, um, are kind of looking for in the coverage that they get. But, you know, a good example of this yesterday, Peter, was a, a column written by John Ibbotson of the Globe and Mail. And I, I don't know if you um, had a chance to read it yet or if others who are listening to this podcast have had a chance to read it. But it's a good um, it's a good example of where the line is, as far as I'm concerned. I was quite critical of, of this article because basically Mr. Ibbotson's assertion is that the People's Party is far outside the mainstream of Canadian politics, but it deserves representation. And in the course of his column, he said there are plenty of reasons why so many people have become resentful and untrusting. And I'm, I'm reading an exact quote here. There are plenty of reasons why so many people have become resentful and untrusting. Colon, the loss of manufacturing jobs due to offshoring, the increasing number of non-European immigrants, the stress of the pandemic, the self-empowerment that comes from rejecting authority. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, he's just describing a fact as he sees it. I tend to look at it and say, if you say uh, there are plenty of reasons why so many people have become resentful and and untrusting, like the increasing number of non-European immigrants, I feel like you're giving a legitimacy to that, that if you don't um, counter uh, you're giving it a bit of oxygen. And I'm not saying that Mr. Ibbotson uh, feels that way, but I did note that after there was a lot of pushback on the column, somebody went in and edited that column and added the, this is racist, but it is how they feel. And I think this is a really good example of, of, the dilemma as it relates to the people's party because people's party isn't only about um, accommodation of a multicultural society, but it's very clear to me that Max Bernier has made uh, a very strenuous point about multiculturalism and how he feels about it. But I think people's party supporters also include people who are angry about other things. They're angry about vaccination. They're angry about the state of the world. He's not wrong in diagnosing what some of those opinions are. Uh, But the idea that just because there are some of them that we should kind of elevate them, I think I don't agree with that. I think that if he wants to convince more people of his argument, he's free to do that in a democracy. Should the media um, do anything to help? That's up to individual media platforms and journalists. And for everyone that wants to write that we should legitimize that kind of opinion. Uh, I, I, for one, and I think, you know, probably you are going to go, I'm not with you on that. I don't think that that's the way to characterize the, you know, the legitimate grievance. Yes, of course, people can be upset about the loss of manufacturing jobs. Yes, of course, they can be stressed by the pandemic. They can feel a self-empowerment that comes from rejecting authority. But non-European immigrants, we have a lot of them in this country. We have a lot of them. We have a lot of European immigrants who've um, treated very harshly First Nations. 
once we sort of legitimize this notion that this is just one of the grievances that, that kind of builds up uh, a political party and and let's kind of recognize that it's there and sort of, you know, maybe try to get along with it. I don't buy it at all. What about you? Um, well, yeah, listen, here's where we, uh, there may be a difference uh, between us. I, I, I agree with the points you just uh, made, the, the, the last points, absolutely. Um, but earlier on, you said, um, you know, a movement that's outside um, mainstream political thought. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of movements start outside the mainstream political thought, and they become part of the mainstream political thought. And how do they achieve that? Well, perhaps they they have something to say that that, that is you know accepted by a, a significant number of the people. Perhaps what they have to say is it, it does not reflect the country as we know it, but nobody's pushing them on what they have to say. And sadly, history has shown us what happens when, when, um, when that happens, when there is no pushback, when the media doesn't cover a, a movement that has shown some I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about the Green Party. This party has double the votes of the Green Party, if the polls are accurate. We'll, we'll know on Monday. Um, so all I'm saying is, is it fair, not from a question of balance or a question of, you know, gee, they deserve us, a, a question of being the way Rosie was yesterday with, with uh, Jagmeet Singh, pushing. Yes. Trying to understand why, why are you saying that? What do you base that on? Like, yeah. what do you really want out of this? What would you do to you know, non-European immigrants, would you, you know, ban them for ending their country? Would you throw people out? What would you do? You know, I think that's where the question of fairness exists, that there is no, you know, no push, no demanding through the, because of the rules of the game that all the networks and all the media organizations for the most part seem that they've agreed to, I basically shut these guys out while every day their number seems to go up a little bit. Well, look, I, I, I agree with you, Peter, on, on this uh, to some extent. And I, and if you said to me, would you like to see a debate where Max Bernier and Justin Trudeau or Max Bernier and Aaron O'Toole go toe to toe? I would pay to watch that if that was a pay to watch kind of thing. And I would pay for other people to watch it. I want to see Max Bernier challenge. What I hate is that scenario of six people on a stage where this marginal character with sideshow freakish views gets to chip in one line every once in a while and people can go, oh, you know, he said something that didn't sound so outrageous or it was outrageous, but in the way that I liked it. And then we never get to find out anything more about what's underneath the hood. Now, Mr. Ibbotson's uh, colleague, Gary Mason, also wrote a piece for The Globe. And the headline of that piece was Maxime Bernier's Disgraceful Election Campaign. And uh, that's a pretty strong headline. And then the column is pretty strong appropriately as well. And one of the things that he highlights, which really does go to the do we know 
what he's really saying. And if we did, would we say, well, let's, let's give it 7% of the coverage or something like that. Or would we all say, well, what is he, what is he really talking about? Cause here's the quote, uh, because we know that without freedom, there's no human dignity, uh, equality of rights and economic prosperity. We know that freedom is the foundation of our Western civilization. And then he pulls out this quote. He says, where tyranny becomes law revolution becomes our duty. And that line, uh, Mason points out, is very familiar to far-right militias. And so should that be censored? No. Uh, should a light be shone on it? Yes. But should we, you know, as, as John Ibbotson was doing, saying, well, we're just looking down our nose at all of these people as Laurentian elites rather than we're trying not to to be too horrified by this notion that there's a guy on the stage who came within 1% after winning on 12 consecutive ballots, came within 1% of winning the Conservative Party leadership, who was our foreign minister, and who was able to rally a significant number of people. Now, I've measured racism in Canada, and, and I think you've seen some of that work. I don't like to use the number uh, 10% to say that's how many people are pretty hardcore racists in Canada. But if you ask me to pin it down, I would say it's about 10%. Um, and I'm not saying all racists will vote People's Party of Canada, but I would say that it's the only party that that probably looks like it's, uh, you know, it's it's willing to kind of hear them out or uh, have the discussions that they want to have. Uh, I think this is a really interesting topic. And, um, you know, I look forward to seeing what happens on, on Monday night on a number of different levels. And this is being, this being one of them. And, and I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to afford us the opportunity to have a, a continuing discussion on this front, because uh, if that party does as, uh, as well as these polls suggest, um, they become a factor in any number of different ways. Uh, they'll become a factor in, in, in who ends up winning on Monday night. Um, if they end up winning seats, which seems unlikely at this moment, but mm -hmm. if they did, they'll become a factor in parliament. Um, but I, you know, it, uh, it that situation does not go away in terms of whatever the result is on on Monday night. It's going to be it, it's something we all have to face, and I think um, you know, as a people, we have to face it. As as media organizations, we have to we have to face um, uh, questions about what exactly do we do in terms of covering and how we cover it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I get that it's not easy. I see the I see the dilemma for sure. Okay, look, uh, this is our last chat before uh, before Monday. Um, do you want to say anything uh, even more profound than what you've already said in the last thirty eight minutes? <laughs> <laughs> to, to leave with the uh, with the good people of uh, who 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 love smoke mirrors and the truth. Um, well, I, yeah, I want to say one thing. I, I you know I. I've watched Aaron O'Toole in this campaign and, and I've been critical of some things, but I think that the thing that he's been trying to do is make um, a version of what I would think of as a noble trade. He's tried to basically say, I don't really want 
the most angry um, voters. I want to trade that support if I have to leave it behind for the People's Party for more people on the center of the spectrum who are looking for an alternative to the liberals that isn't um, radically different, but is more conservative, more small C conservative. And I think that he's made a more vigorous effort than Andrew Scheer did and um, maybe a more potentially successful effort than Stephen Harper did. Um, so I, I give him, I give him some marks for that. I think that there are, I think his challenge frankly is that um, he's got two challenges. One is that the bulk of his policy is I would say better than Andrew Scheer's policy. His climate policy for sure is better than that, but a lot of his policy proposals aren't as good as they should be. And I think that uh, that a lot of observers have said that platform is weaker than the liberal platform in a number of respects. And so that's more work to do, but that's hardly the same as saying um, there are huge anathema ideas in it. They're, they're just kind of lighter versions of policies that more people like, I guess. And then on the other side, um, I think he'd run into a problem, which is that if angry voters want to vote with their anger, and maybe Aaron O'Toole comes across as the Diet Coke of anger, and they look at Max Bernier and they say, if I'm angry, he's giving me full-on, high-test, real, classic angry, and I'm more drawn to that. I still think it's the right noble choice for Aaron O'Toole to make, to try to make that trade. I'll win more votes on the center if I lose some on the right. But when I watched him go kind of personal and negative, uh, I think it was yesterday, it made me think, well, okay, maybe he's decided that that trade isn't working out and he needs to go back and get some of those angry voters. So I'll be watching for that as well. And and um, I think that's one of the really interesting dynamics here. It is. Absolutely. Uh, and it's ironic in a way because you've got, not that this hasn't happened before, but it's so clear, crystal clear here on, uh, on this campaign, you've got the conservatives trying to poach soft people's party votes, as you just outlined, and you've got liberals trying to poach soft NDP votes from the other side of the spectrum. And uh, it's entirely possible that whichever one of those two parties is successful in the poaching that they're trying to do will end up being the winner on Monday night. Yeah. We'll see. All right, listen, uh, good of you to be smoke mirrors in the true thing today, but you'll be back in uh, 48 hours with uh, Chantel on Good Talk, and uh, I'm sure we'll have lots to say on Friday. So, you, Bruce, you, can I just, you if, say if you can make it talk. quick, <laughs> Good you Talk. Good Talk, and I always feel like we should say Good Talk. It's a <laughs> subtle difference, but, you know, I, I, I just want to leave that there. Thank you, Peter. Great to talk to you again. <laughs> we'll have that debate. Should it okay. be good talk or good talk? That's it. That's it. Didn't that sound better? I like it. I don't think so. But we'll let the voters decide. All right. Tomorrow it's your turn. So get those cards and letters coming in. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Um, Thanks for listening on this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. 